Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 30 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And today we're joined by Vina Dubal, a professor of law at UC Hastings, a scholar whose work focuses on the intersection of law, technology, and precarious work. And some of you might know her as well as uh, public enemy number one for some of the gig companies like Uber, which makes her a friend around these parts. Vina, so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. So kind of you to um, invite me and I'm happy to be here. So we've got a lot to get through on this show, on this episode, but I I think maybe by way of introduction, we can kind of talk about the landscape of where we're at now in terms of Prop 22, of course, in terms of the ramping up of these platforms and their kind of militancy against labor. Um, and, 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 I mean, just also that question of what, what's even the potential for, for worker power um, against these, these platforms that are, you know, building their own power right now? Yeah, those are um, really good questions. And um, I guess I would just start by saying that things don't look good right now in California post Prop 22. But what I've been heartened by is the number of workers who have been long engaged in, you know, worker organizing, been, you know, devoting their time to this for to building power for the past two years, um, and the the reality that they know um, they are not stopping. That they, you know, I think that there was a sense when Prop 22 passed. I think certainly the gig companies thought, great, these groups are going to dissolve. Um, no union is going to touch them because of the antitrust considerations that um, that go into, you know, potentially funding worker organizing in a field where drivers or workers are considered independent contractors. Um, and yet the drivers who have been doing this work continue to do it. And, you know, when mm-hmm. I, I sit in their meetings and I say, well, what, like, what now? What's your vision now? They say to me, well, we just build worker power. We just continue to build worker power and we bargain directly with the company. Um, and, you know, in this, in this instance, um, we don't have good laws on our side. The state, um, you know, tried to enforce employment laws against us or against the companies and the companies in turn passed Prop 22. The law is not on our side, um, but we're, we're going to keep, we're going to keep building power so that we can force the companies to, um, to behave in a way that gives us some, some, some modicum of, of dignity and respect. That's really heartening. That said, the situation legally in California is very bad. And my concern mm. is that it's going to spread all over um, all over the United States and, and actually all over the world. Um, so maybe I can talk a little bit about, about Prop 22 and what it actually did. Yeah, um, please. I, because I think that um, part of why it passed is because it's so damn confusing. Um, and so what Prop 22 actually did, in contrast to what, um, what the gig companies advertised it was going to do, is take away all of the rights that workers had, all of the rights that the state of California, both the legislature and the judiciary, um, had said the workers deserved the right to a time-based minimum wage, meaning they had the right to be paid for all the time that they spent laboring, um, the right to, you know, business reimbursement expenses, the right to paid sick leave, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, mm-hmm. um, the right to, to health insurance, the right to 
um, not be discriminated against at work, the right to workers' compensation if they were injured on the job. Um, and, you know, this is, according to the, the U.S. Occupational um, Safety Board, the most one of the most dangerous jobs in the country um, is, you know, driving for work. And, um, and of course, unemployment insurance. So they had all of these rights and Prop 22 literally stripped every single one of them away. Um, but in addition to stripping them all away, what it legalized was a system of piecework. So mm-hmm. workers are only paid when they have work dispatched to them. So, you know, if there's no demand, like in the middle of a pandemic, and I work 12 hours a day as an Uber driver, I may only be paid for an hour of that work. Um, and so it, 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 create, it creates a situation where all of the, the workers themselves are bearing the risks and liabilities associated with doing business. Um, and that is a very, very different system of work than we have come to know and, and organize around in, in the U.S. over the past century. In fact, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act during the New Deal abolished piece work um, because across sectors where you saw piece work, like say in the garment sector, um, people who engaged in piece work were making one third of what people who were doing um, who were doing the work hourly were making. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, again, precisely what we see now legally sanctioned in the state of California. Um, and, and what the venture capitalists have already told us is, you know, the day after, two days after um, Prop 22 passed, um, a, a venture capitalist, Sean Carolyn, wrote an op-ed in The Information, which is this tech online media outlet. He wrote an op-ed called What Prop 22 Makes Possible. And what he wrote in that article was essentially, we can now have piecework for health for education, for hospitality, for retail sectors. We can spread this model um, across all of these sectors. And these sectors are filled with with people who are are currently making a middle-class living, um, you know, probably barely scraping by, um, probably need more protections and not less, probably need higher wages and not lower ones. Um, And what what the the, the capitalists are saying is like, like, this is great. We have a blueprint for how to get a law like this passed. And, um, and we know it can work even in a progressive state like California with a, with a democratic electorate and, um, and let's go, we're going to do it. And so, you know, I think that what, um, despite all of our efforts during the Prop 22, the fight against Prop 22, we were saying, you know, I was saying this is the most dangerous law in the country right now that, that we need to be fighting um, as far as, as world's leaders go. And we, we couldn't garner the same kind of attention um, and funding to fight it as, of course, uh, the Capitol did. And so um, I think people are sort of now waking up to the reality that this, this is really bad and, and could, could be worse and or could, could get worse. Um, and, um, and trying to kind of learn lessons from what happened, you know, the, the companies have already, have already tra- are pushing it in other States. Um, again, I think it poses one of the biggest threats to um, not just to organized labor, but to workers um, that we've seen in, in a long time. You've talked in a few pieces, especially in your, in, you know, articles about the history of the tax industry when it was precarious work to secure work and then eventually a neoliberal turn, but also a recent digital piecework piece in 
dissent, Mag, about this attempt to return, right, to an illegal and regulatory environment where profits were realized. And that with these companies, they've obscured that with the talk of their technology and also have gotten us or a lot of people, even if they're critical, to end up repeating some of their core points about yeah. the, the inevitability of their transformations or the source of their power or the intentions of their business model. Yeah. Um, when you look at Prop 22 and it's the threat of it going nationwide, um, do you see parallels here to the attempts to to that first neoliberal turn when secure work in the taxi industries were eviscerated or even to the pre to the precarious era before taxi drivers were employees and before the introduction of that licensing Absolutely. model? Absolutely. I mean, the model that, yes and yes, the model that we see now getting legally sanctioned in California, um, the piecework model, you know, with a limitless, uh, limitless supply, uh, no control over prices or wages. Um, this is precisely the model that, that the taxi industry had uh, at the early part of the 20th century until the Great Depression, when all of a sudden cities were like, oh, municipalities were like, oh, this is actually really bad for consumers who are getting injured, who are being price gouged and um, and also for workers who cannot make a living and then they started to regulate the industry more robustly um, during the great depression um, but you're right that it's also very similar to the shift that we saw in the 1970s after a period of um, you know a good 40-year period where taxi work was unionized work where there were restrictions on supply um, where fares were regulated by the state so Consumers were no longer getting price gouge, or drivers were also, um, you know, had to go through training, professional training, um, licensing, et cetera, to ensure that they were, you know, serving the public um, in, in the most safe way possible. Um, what happened in the 1970s was really clever lawyering, which is exactly what we see here. Um, you, you had these clever lawyers who went to, who wrote um, a letter to the IRS and said, hey, if we change our business model in this way, instead of paying drivers, um, you know, a guaranteed wage by the hour and sharing commissions with them, if we ask them to pay to work, we ask to pay for their shift. Um, and, you know, we can still provide the cars and we can still provide um, the insurance, but they have to pay to work. Um, can we call them independent contractors? And the IRS said, yes, you can call them independent contractors for tax purposes. So drivers literally woke up one day in, um, in you know, in the late seventies and they, they were given new contracts. Um, and, and for them, um, you know, the work was the same. They were still driving taxis. They were still going in to get their shift. Um, but all of a sudden they had to pay for that shift instead of, um, instead of having a guaranteed wage every day. Um, what happened then was that, of course, this was a unionized industry. And so the union sued and they said, well, they can't make these changes um, without some kind of, without coming to the collective bargaining, without coming to the bargaining table, because this is a, this is, these are working conditions that are, that are trying to change. And unfortunately, what the court said was that um, this, this is business prerogative. Um, the companies have the right to change their business model as they see fit. Um, this is not subject to collective bargaining. And the result was that it deunionized the taxi industry. So that is how all of these unions lost 
um, taxi members. This is how taxi workers lost uh, membership in unions, lost representation by unions. It's how they lost health insurance, workers' comp, UI. Um, the, the amazing thing was, was that when that happened in big cities, like it happened in, in I think it happened first in New York, um, it then spread all over the United States. Um, so it was clever lawyer drawing up, you know, drawing up ways to, um, for companies to get out from underneath liabilities, risks, and responsibilities traditionally associated with business, um, having courts sanction, having the state sanction those, um, you know, business models, and then very quickly picked up and spread all over the country. And, and you know, exactly, exactly the same thing that's happening now, um, except for probably 10 steps worse, <laughs> because yeah. unlike the taxi industry, where their, their uh, supply maintained, you know, was still regulated, even um, as drivers were turned into independent contractors, and wages were still somewhat regulated via affairs, you have like a free for all, an environment in which, you know, there are as many cars on the road as Uber wants. And we have no idea how they are determining people's wages. We have no idea how they're determining people's prices. I mean, the way the bonus system works is completely opaque. And that's primarily how what drivers rely on to, um, to make their to make their earnings. It's not their, you know, $5 rides that's that's making making um, a living for them. You know, you don't know when you get into a car whether that driver has insurance because they probably can't pay for it. Um, it's just like a really messed up situation for the public and for and for workers. And really, the only people that benefit are the are the shareholders and and the executives of these companies. I mean, it is noteworthy that Dara Khosra Shahi makes forty five million dollars a year. He has a hundred. $100 million, $120 million um, stock package um, awaiting him when Uber stock stabilizes. And meanwhile, the majority of full-time drivers in California make less than a minimum wage. As a small point, when you talked about you know Dara's uh, compensation package, I think something that also never really gets talked about is how the the rationale also behind booting Kalanick was because investor shareholders wanted Uber on the capital market so they could realize their returns, and Dara was explicitly brought on to be like a good face who would be incentivized mm-hmm. to go public at like a hundred billion and get a huge payout. As a yeah. result of it, right? Not that he would steer them into a missions-focused or missions value a company, or that he would bring his experience of Expedia into the company, but that he would get investors the returns that they wanted, which yeah. he, you know, has committed to with, like, for example, with Prop Twenty Two, you know, right? Yeah. Or the, you know, the Absolutely. legal. Absolutely, and it, it's so frustrating to me that people like Dara Kushra Shahi and Tony West, mm-hmm. um, that they, you know, Tony West, who we can, I, for, you know, for all due purposes, is the architect be- behind Prop 22. He is, um, you know, the general counsel for, for Uber, um, the face of, of Uber's legal moves. And it and is also so, brother-in-law of Kamala of Harris. Kamala Harris, that's right. <laughs> and it is so frustrating to me that they are viewed as respectable in the legal mm-hmm. and political community. You know, you saw Ben Crump write a USA Today article about how Tony West should be considered for Attorney General of the United States of America under a Democratic administration. And it was, you know, it was enraging. This man mm-hmm. who who has um, who has architected the dismantling of protections for in a living wage for people of color workers in California, you know, quote, unquote, gig work 
I hate, hate the term of gig work. Everything can be gig work. Yeah. Um, but Uber driving is primarily conduct, primarily done by immigrants and people of color. The vast majority of them are immigrants and people of color. And, um, and this man literally took like stripped their rights away um, by sanctioning this business model, by sanctioning a $220 million campaign um, to fight workers' rights. And yet you have, um, you have progressives who support her, who, um, you know, really care about, um, about people of color, um, touting him for, for attorney, a man who is supposed to enforce the laws of the country. I mean, it is, it's outrageous. And I've seen, Mm. you know, recently I saw this, um, uh, what is that, that woman's name, Kara Swisher and, and, um, and Mm. Galloway, um, Professor Galloway, what's his first name? I can't remember, but they do. Yeah, that they do this, um, you know, this video podcast, um, and they had Dara Kosher Shahi in the middle of the Prop 22 fight um, do an interview, and you know he looks so reasonable and so respectable, and this is right after his, you know, excuse my French bullshit um, New York Times op-ed, mm-hmm. and who allowed him to publish that bullshit New York Times op-ed? I don't know, um, but he in which he said, you know, it's time for Uber to to do right by their drivers at the same time that they were putting this horrible proposition on the ballot. And he, you know, very sounded so reasonable and they were giving him the space, which he should never have had. And he said, you know, it went on and on and on about how much he, that he, they cared about their workers and wanted to do right by them in the interview. And literally five seconds later, he said, um, they talked to, they, they turned to self-driving cars and he said, oh yeah, like we should have self-driving cars in, in like two years, which is, <laughs> it, just, which is completely yeah. uh, idiotic even in and of itself. Like there, we are not, ha- we don't have self-driving cars in two years. That's, you know, maybe we'll have some semblance of a, of and something. Uber's and given I, up on that dream already. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he's like literally talking out of both sides of his mouth at the same time in the same interview. Um, and yet like everyone's like, Oh, he's so reasonable. You know, he's yeah. such a, he's such a reasonable, he's respectable. Right. Yeah, this is what Sam respectable. Sam talked about this a bit, right? We're still plagued by the consequences of like a decade of not really Sam Harnett, a, Q, a Kate QED journalist for listeners who did a really great essay of an overview of pretty much non-labor coverage of uh, you know, ride hailing and just showed how much of it was like press releases, you know, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it was, you know, going back to the early days, I mean, Sam's piece is great. Maybe we can link to it in the, um, mm-hmm. when you, when he posts the post- podcast, he has it up on an SSRN, sure. but, you know, going back to the early days, I just remember reading a, uh, a New Yorker back in the day when James, Sur- I can't pronounce his last name, but he was the, um, he did the financial page for the, uh, the New Yorker. He was like talking about how awesome Uber was and how this is like so innovative and um, and so exciting for urban transportation. And I remember around the same time doing my uh, job talk and it was just as Uber had hit the streets of San Francisco and I was doing a, 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 a practice job talk and I just like got eviscerated by um, some of the postdocs in my program who were like, but this has changed my life. Like I can go clubbing now. <laughs> and and I can go to bars now. And I was like, 
I am not concerned about the consumer yeah. experience here. Like I'm yeah. talking about the evisceration of wages. I am so glad you can go to a bar now and not have to wait for a taxi. But like I am talking about the, the business and labor model here. But there, you know, and it's still you still have journalists who take Uber's word for it. I mean, there was a really you know irritating article in Ars Technica um, about about when the CPUC um, slapped. Uber recently with a fine for not releasing any of their data about about the sexual assaults that consumers experienced and the and and perhaps workers also experienced um, on when they're on the job driving for Uber or riding an Uber, and they just really took Uber's word for the privacy yeah. considerations. Um, He's I a long time show. That, Timothy Lee, I've read his stuff uh, for years. He's I've never seen him say a critical word about Uber and and, and has always spun there everything. Spun the unprofitability, spun violence, uh, sexual violence on the platform, um, spun the self-driving cars, uh, spun literally everything as a press. I mean, we were supposed mm-hmm. to have ta- we were supposed to have um, flying oh, taxis by 2020. <laughs> Melbourne I mean, was supposed to be a, a, one of the like living labs for flying taxis. And yeah, and that that's abandoned as well. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I mean, this is this is one that I, I'll say it. I, I've said it a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand more. But but, you know, the, the road to hell is paved by promises of convenience, right? Yeah. Like that's what these companies thrive on is yeah. um, promising these these marginally more convenient consumer experiences on the back of labor, on the back of completely eviscerating workers' rights and livelihoods. Yeah. Only way that I can really um, get consumers, you know, middle-class consumers, upper-middle-class consumers interested in this conversation, and they kind of don't always believe me, even though it's, um, it's just true, is that like, Part of why the the taxi industry was, it was safe to take a taxi because those were professional drivers who were invested in what they were doing. Um, This was their job. Like they knew the city in like the back of their hand and they were proud of what they were doing. It was their identity. Um, And it's not, it's not complete. I don't, I wouldn't put my parents in an Uber or a Lyft um, because not because, you know, every every driver is dangerous at all, but because like there, these people don't necessarily know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. They're not, you know, they're like desperately, desperately, desperately trying to make a living. Um, Mm -hmm. and they don't have health insurance. The faster they go, the more quickly they get the next ride. I mean, like all of the interests of of workers and consumers are really wrapped together in this particular industry. Mm -hmm. When I talk to people about Uber and monopolization. Again, it's like the like we have to be thinking about the long run, long term here. So what everyone said with Prop Twenty Two, like every um, every you know op ed board that I spoke to the, for the major newspapers, every um, you know a lot of the journalists that I spoke to, they said, oh, but they're going to raise prices, and I'm like. Yes, they are going to raise prices whether or not Prop 22 passes because Mm. they are hemorrhaging money. They have never turned a profit. The whole idea here is to completely monopolize the transportation market, um, to take over private uh, public transportation, to take over private transportation, and then to raise prices, you know, in a way that 
um, that makes them profitable. And sure enough, like despite all of the BS about how, oh, we're going to have to raise prices if we don't pass pass Prop 22, last week they raised prices. And Mm -hmm. they said that those prices, um, that they were going to charge consumers a benefits fee for the quote unquote benefits that Prop 22 allegedly gives workers, these are benefits that almost no one has access to because you have to drive for 40 engaged hours mm-hmm. in order to gain access to a healthcare subsidy. And if you already are on Medi-Cal or Medicare, you don't have access to this healthcare subsidy anyway. So the vast majority of drivers do not have access to this. I mean, we're talking maybe a thousand, two thousand drivers. You know, we're talking about very few drivers have access to this healthcare subsidy, and yet Uber slapped consumers with this BS healthcare um, or, or benefits fund, uh, you know, thing that makes them think that some of their um, money is going to benefit drivers. When in fact, like, there's no evidence of that because no one has access to these these you know substandard benefits. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, um, it's like the entire industry is grift. Everything, everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, it's all bullshit and lies. Absolutely. And it's it's run by a bunch of con men who continue to con people, right? Like, I think you really hit on something here where, I mean, this is such a big bugbear of mine. This like this presentation of civility as a mask yes. for a politics of cruelty, right? Oh, and that's, that's what it so is. that's so beautifully put. That's like, I'm <laughs> writing that down. That's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. It's like civility and respectability, masking, um, really like bloodthirsty, irresponsible capitalists' intentions. Yeah. The, the whole reason why the shareholders of Uber and the board um, ousted uh, Kalanick was was not because of what he believed in or the direction that he was taking the company. It's it's the fact that he couldn't get himself together when in the public eye. He couldn't yeah. stay. It, it's like with Adam Newman and WeWork, right? Like he couldn't stay Absolutely. away from being the bad boy entrepreneur. Um, and so they had to get him out of there so that uh, the, the company could regain that ability to make profit and value. Also, and look respectable. You're right. Exactly. Because when you really get down to it with, you know, Uber, with Lyft, with any of these, you know, so-called gig companies, right? You know, but especially post-Kalanick, they all say in one way or another, they're radically different because they care about the consumers. They have paid models specifically for the consumers. They don't call them supply like he did. They don't treat them horribly. But what is the difference other than like the PR glean? I mean, with like Dark Horse, sorry, right? The wages are lower. The Arguments are even more egregious with the revelation, for example, of like sexual violence on the platform, but then at the same time, a secret unit to suppress reports yeah. of rape or assault, yeah. of uh, harassment. Um, you have, you know, still an ongoing refusal. As you talked about this engage time thing, I think is really important, you know, for listeners, we talked a little bit about uber's mechanics for the for the uh for paying its drivers but the key thing is you know as as venus has worked on like they want to do peace not hour pay right they want to pay you Mm -hmm. only for the time in which you're specifically on a trip and in driving and specifically ride hailing uh, a huge amount of the time is not utilized where you don't have a customer right and those costs are not covered in prompt 22 so the the gas you spend driving around is not covered um under prompt 22 nor is the time you spend driving around allowed uh to be covered 
compensated, right? And so that ends up bringing it down to sub-minimum wages, like around five sixty-four, according to you know the labor center. And um, and that and that was during that was pre-pandemic. Those calculations right. were made pre-pandemic when there was mm. so much more supply. Right now, I'm guessing wages are like two dollars. It, it, it's like what is the difference? And and it, I think for me, it has also been really frustrating to see coverage of it. I mean, I think, again, like non-labor coverage, because when you talk to the drivers, it's very obvious. It's very obvious if you listen to drivers, how, yeah. where the pain is and who and who's paying for this. That's but right. there's still refusal or hesitance to really engage with it or to be critical on very specific fronts. It's not profitable, right? It right. breaks the law sometimes. And yeah. not like it is uh, very explicitly sacrificing and killing drivers yeah. so that yeah. we can have convenient rides for now, so until right. it can monopolize them and break right. the law. Absolutely. Emphasis mm-hmm. on for now. And, you know, every right. time, every op-ed board that I did during the Prop 22, the journalists would say to me, or the people on the opinion boards would say to me, oh, but drivers tell us that they love this, that they like it. They like the independence. They like being an independent contractor. And really, they didn't have a lot of arguments on their side. And there were two arguments that they that the companies made over and over again. And people just lapped it up like, puppies to milk. Like they said, um, drivers want to be independent contractors, uh, which of course we know is um, a, a complete bullshit argument because 80% of Americans no, don't know the difference between a 1099 and employee status anyway. They don't know the differences between um, the, between these things. And who wants a boss? No one wants a boss. I don't want a boss. You don't want a boss. Of course, we want to be independent contractors. But if you ask drivers, oh, do you want access to a minimum wage? Oh, do you want access to workers' compensation? Do you want access to unemployment insurance? You get very, very, very different answers. Um, so, but that, but you know, every journalist just lap it up. But what about the fact that drivers want to be independent contractors? Like, of course, they want to be independent contractors. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to be an independent contractor. And then the second argument that that the companies had that were really that was really unfortunately effective with the with the voting public and with um, and with the people who are covering you know the media that was that were covering this um, was that if the companies didn't pass Prop 22, that they were going to lay off thousands of workers. Mm -hmm. And like, it's such a simple reality that if you have finite supply, then the business, the business's job is to make sure that demand and supply are calibrated. What the companies were saying is that oh, they were going to have to act res- like responsible businesses like every other mm-hmm. business to try and to try and calibrate supply and demand if they had to if they had to hire employees um, as opposed to allow people to lose money every day when they're working, which is essentially the situation that that we are in now where you can work legally now for Uber in California for 12 hours a day and go home in debt, go home with less money than you started the day with. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those are the two arguments and people, I don't know whether it's because it's like, seems complicated. I don't know whether it's because, you know, these, these companies have all of these Obama Democrats like like Tony West who who seem like they are you know wouldn't do something so horrible. I don't know why, but those are really effective um, 
effective messages for mm. um, in California. And they're the things that I think we really have to watch out for moving forward because it's not complicated. And those are the only two things that they said. And they said to them over and over and over again, along with a bunch of lies. And that got the law passed. I want to dig a little bit deeper into this concept of independent contractors. And as you put it, the kind of um, this bifurcation of this dualism in legal worker identities in, in your um, excellent essay called Wage Slave or Entrepreneur, um, which we'll, of course, throw a link in the episode description to that. But in there, I think you what was really illuminating for me in reading this this article of yours is the way that you trace back the kind of legal, political, and ideological history of a lot of these concepts that these platforms have weaponized so effectively. Things like flexibility, things like entrepreneurship, things like innovation. This is not their own uh, creation, right? Like the groundwork for this has been laid in the courts by policy for a while. And you, you talk about, quote, so a growing number of workers are not considered employees under the law, but independent contractors, working class entrepreneurs who are ineligible for basic employment safeguards, such as the right to collectively bargain, the right to minimum wage, and the right to protections against employee discrimination, among others. With the innovation and proliferation of business models, intended to lower corporate costs by relying on non-legally cognizable employee labor, especially in the on-demand or gig economy, more workers are working casually. Can you, can you help us pick apart a little bit about, about how they've been using these, these concepts of entrepreneurialism and flexibility as, as kind of bait, dangling yeah. them in front of workers and then doing, doing the old bait and switch, you know, yeah. getting them on the platforms with these promises, but then the reality is something much starker. Absolutely. So, you know, um, this, this bifurcation employee independent contractor didn't exist in the law for social protections, didn't exist in the law for, for wages really until, um, about 10 years after the new deal laws were passed. So, you know, your listeners may know that it was during the great depression, um, when Congress passed the new deal, which gave us the, vast majority of the employee worker protections that we have today, um, with minimum wage, overtime, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, disability, and, um, and SSA, Social Security. You know, in the 1930s, the mid-1930s, all these laws were passed. And the way that um, workers were defined during that time period was really like everyone was um, was just defined as as an um, an employee or a worker. You didn't think of workers as either independent contractors and employees. You just everyone was an employee or a worker. And very quickly, businesses were like, "Well, shit! If we have to pay our workers, you know, a minimum wage, that's going to raise our labor costs." Um, and so they started to try and get out from these um, protections by saying that their that their workers were independent contractors. But mm. notably, there was nothing in the the history of this legislation that said that um, you know 
quote unquote, independent contractors were not supposed to get these protections. Um, and so the, you know, these cases went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rejected, um, rejected these, uh, these um, attempts by the companies, um, by capitalists, by industrialists to um, not offer their workers these basic protections. And it was actually a, um, the famous case, Hearst Publications v. NLRB, was about newspaper delivery men um, who Hearst Publications owner uh, tried to not pay their newspaper um, men a minimum wage and tried to um, prevent them from unionizing. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, oh, these are independent contractors, each of these you know, independent small businessmen who are, who are distributing these newspapers, they're not, they're not workers. And the court said, well, that's ridiculous because the the law, even if they are independent contractors, the way the law is written and the the purpose behind these laws is to provide protections for low wage um, and and low income um, people. And so we reject your argument. And the Congress 10 years later in 1948 passed Taft-Hartley, passed a number of different pieces of legislation that infused the New Deal with these independent contractor, um, with the independent contractor carve out. All of a sudden responding to Hearst, um, because it was, a, it was a particularly right-wing Congress when they got this law passed, um, these laws passed and they said, um, well, you know, independent contractors, we're going to carve them out of the FLSA, we're going to ca- carve them out of the SSA, we're going to carve them out of the National Labor Relations Act. And interestingly, um, Truman vetoed many of these efforts by Congress. And if you read the vetoes, they're really like strongly worded. He said, you know, I'm vetoing these laws because otherwise hundreds of thousands of Americans would not have the, the right to collectively bargain. They wouldn't have right to minimum wage. And he, um, and, you know, he talked about taxi workers. He talked about insurance salesmen, et cetera. And Congress overrode his veto and passed the laws anyway. But most of the economy at the time was still organized in such a way that you couldn't pretend that your workers were independent contractors mm. um, because we were in, you know, still very much in a manufacturing sort of world. But as we moved closer and closer to or more and more into a service sector where you have more people doing service work as their primary source of income, um, you you see the proliferation of this independent contractor uh, model in effort to get out from underneath base, you know, offering your workers a basic living wage, you know, trying to undermine unionization, making it so that you don't have to pay into um, pay into UI, et cetera. And so, you know, like it's the janitorial industry, the construction industry, the, the nail salon industry, the taxi industry, these are the places where you saw um, businesses in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s start saying, well, we have independent contractor workers and this is so great for them because mm. they're free and they don't have a boss and no one wants a boss and um and they can they can call themselves small business people and you know like that ideological bent to some degree has been effective on how workers think of their work also like there's something that I've been tracing and looking I'm um, trying to write my book right now about this and I've been tracing in my in my ethnographic field notes and interview notes, how sometimes workers are organizing as small business people and sometimes they're organizing as workers. Like they also occasionally really feel the 
power of, I mean, there's a, um, an affective power to feeling like you're not, you don't have a boss telling you what to do Mm -hmm. when, you know, you don't have a boss telling you when to work. You don't have a boss telling you, you have to wear a uniform. Um, and that's, I think part of why having an algorithmic boss has been so effective because even though you have someone controlling you, um, many people controlling you and your behavior, it's not like an asshole, you know, guy standing over your shoulder or, you know, some guy that you have to go to the garage, the, you know, the taxi garage and have to deal with his, his crap every day, often racist crap. Um, That's not like, that's not part of your, your everyday. And I think that has really enabled um, the kind of the ways in which some workers, not all, but some workers have really um, taken this, this feeling of, of small, being a small business person to heart. That said, I have seen a major shift in the last, um, in my field notes, you, you, I noticed a major shift in the last two years, pro- probably starting around 2018 when wages were dropping so low that you just kind of see that narrative disappear um, where mm. like there's no longer workers no longer and, and um, uh, we're talking about, you know, feeling like they were small business people um, or like they were independent. It was just like, we hate this company. <laughs> like <laughs> this company is our boss and they are not giving us li- a living wage. And yes, I need flexible work. I need to be able to take a day off because I have um, a mental illness or a physical illness or small children, or I care for my, um, you know, I live a transnational life and I need to, to leave to, to take care of my, my parents in, in South Asia. Um, yes, I need the flexibility of, of schedule, um, but they are squeezing me, um, squeezing me dry and they are my boss. Um, but the, the real, the, it was, it's really the flexibility of schedule thing that people talk about most now when they talk about like what they, why this work is different, if it is different from other types of work. Mm-hmm. And they don't mean like I can work at two o'clock in the morning because they still can only, they only can, they can only work when there is demand. And the companies actually tell them at the beginning of the week when there's going to be demand, like they send you an email that says like, there's going to be demand based on our data analytics from four to 6 PM in this area that's when you should work. Um, so it's mm-hmm. not like they can work at any time, um, but if they need to take a day off, they can take a day off without risking um, termination. And that is um, that is what they mean when they say like scheduling flexibility. Um, and there's ways to do that. There's ways to regulate, to yeah. ensure that workers have scheduling flexibility. Um, there's ways to um, ensure that kind of quote unquote freedom. Um, and that, that's, you know, what I was telling regulators in California after AB5 is like, you very quickly need to also expand workers' rights in this arena mm-hmm. because otherwise they are going to weaponize this, this like scheduling flexibility that everybody needs. You know, like sometimes I have to cancel a class because I have a sick child. And sometimes I have to, um, I have to leave a little bit early from class or I have to cancel a meeting because, you know, I have life. We all like live yeah. life and we all need, um, we need that kind of, all of us, not just these workers, we all need that kind of um, ownership over our own time. Um, but mm-hmm. the peace rate system does not give you ownership over your own time. It gives you basically the right to work very long hours without making, um, without making a living wage. 
Yeah, and this is totally reflected as well in in a, in a lot of the other uh, social science work on the actual lived experiences of workers on these platforms. I'm thinking in particular of, of my friend and, and and collaborator Karen Gregory, who's based in um, the University of Edinburgh, and her work with Deliveroo workers. And and yeah, the lived experience of flexibility becomes the the necessity to work all of the time just yeah. to make ends meet. Right. It's, yes. it's this it's this devil's bargain that like wage work is was this devil's bargain that, you know, by by capital paying you a wage, they not only claimed all of the value you produced, but they also started to claim um, complete dominion over your entire life. When you yeah. worked, how you worked, uh, et cetera, your your yeah. family life, your social life, all of this. And, and so the it seems that the way that companies like Uber are trying to frame it is, you know, they're trying to reframe that devil's bargain, right? Oh, you know, we're, we're actually going to, um, we're only going to pay you for the value you produce. And we're not going to put any uh, uh, extraneous claims upon upon your life or upon your time. But, but in reality, uh, it, it looks like an even more hellish way of working Absolutely. and living. Absolutely. And you've, and I see that across what we call the gig economy. So like, no one talks about these um, AMT workers or very few people talk about these Turk workers and all of the, the data processing workers who do the, the most time intensive work um, that is uh, critical to AI shifts. So like in every single sector of work, you have conversations about, you know, AI and, and not just work, like anything you do, like you're talking about vaccines and, and the distribution of vaccines and the Stanford guys are like, oh, it was the algorithm, you know, like these, these conversations, they, they infuse our life in every sector. Um, and yet the people that are doing the data work to make any kind these, you know, these shifts possible are, um, are often, data workers, uh, data processors who are getting paid by the piece in order, like, for example, self-driving cars, uh, which is, you know, not going to happen, but all of the, the people who are collecting the, the images for the self-driving car, people who are labeling those for the self-driving cars, the people who are cleaning the images, the people who are, um, you know, putting those images into the algorithms, all of those people are being paid by the piece um, mm -hmm. via these companies like Amazon Mechanical Turk and, and Cloud Cloudflower, etc., um, and there has been no discussion, no regulatory discussion about the fact that they're making like two dollars an hour in the United States because there's yeah. this bizarro sense that somehow they're doing different work, that their work is different than um, than you know my work or your work or um, the work of someone at a, at a, at a fast food chain. Um, that that is the application of technology here um, somehow makes it unique and different and therefore it's okay that they're just making two dollars an hour like this expansion of ghost work or this expansion of like invisible labor right like as the tech economy becomes more and more integral to you know labor and you know in general capital markets that haven't fully recovered from the great recession and also as you've talked about like the decline of the welfare state in general more and more and more of the world gets consumed or it feels like computerized and then you know uh more and more workers get dragged down into the depths of this invisible labor where 
where there's like one type of invisible labor, it feels like where it's like out of sight, out of mind, you're doing the content moderation, you're doing, like you said, the labeling of the AI, you're doing the stuff that really does make your service feel like smooth. Mm -hmm. And then another level of it where it's like, well, it's like either where it's artificially framed as your convenience posed against this worker's ability to live. And I, and one thing that worries me also is with these legal and political battles, it's like the embedding of those hostile attitudes into the public consciousness. We already see like the rise of like, you know, snitching essentially in our society in the sense that like we have the mass deployment surveillance and it's pitched as like you can watch your packages you can watch your neighborhood you can watch your kids and now it's like everybody that passes by your door like on a Mm -hmm. public street all the time Mm -hmm. you can watch them all the time yeah yeah and it's like so we have that and then we also have like oh in the last leg of this race to control the ride hail industry, this more and more intense arguments that like your convenience, all the stuff that you enjoy, your mobility, your access to work is premised on this worker suffering, but they're not really suffering because they're flexible, right? Because they're flexible and they love it, right? They, yeah. they Supposedly they love it because every time, oh, that's so irritating because every time you talk to them, you are also rating them and are essentially determining whether or not they have a job tomorrow. Of course, they're going to yeah. tell you that they love it. Yeah, that's also another thing too. I One of, when I first was organizing in uh, New York, it's like very obvious when a driver is um, telling you what they think will get them a good rating. And when like mm-hmm. you've gotten them to actually be honest and mm-hmm. usually drivers are going to be honest if they're already having a hard time or if you like push the conversation there. But if you just do a simple, which a lot of people have told me, they just do a simple like sort of, hey, so what's uh, what's the job like? And it's like, yeah, you know, I just, I, I do my own hours and so on and so forth. Um, but every driver will, or a lot of drivers will, if you push, talk about how long they've been working that day, right? Um, and how little they've been able to make or how much they might've made and what, but like the lengths they had to go to it. Yeah. Are, are you concerned that, you know, with there's, there's also this illegal and political front, but now like a cultural front where people are being trained to see their conveniences in opposition to like other workers' livelihoods. Absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like that's been going on for a really long time. I feel like that's part of the neoliberal shift uh, more broadly, but I, I think particularly with the amplification of on-demand service work as it relates to the degradation of labor conditions, um, there is a, an increasing acceptance of um, of this as somehow a necessary reality and that this is, you know, what I heard some, one of these execs at the, at one of these companies say like, Oh, like this is a good second job. So not mm. just the, the acceptance of this as um, necessary to pay people um, very little so that consumers can have all the conveniences that they need. Um, but also a sense in which it's like totally acceptable to have three or four jobs. And that's just the reality. And, you know, if you're not hustling to, um, to, to, to have three or four jobs and you're being irresponsible. Um, I had a, conversely, I had an acquaintance say to me the other day um, that he had ordered DoorDash or maybe he just saw a DoorDash driver um, drop off a, um, an order and his, he had left his kids who were, two of his kids who were sleeping in the car. And he said to me, can you believe it? It was so irresponsible. I was going to call the police. I was going to call 
um, DoorDash. And I was like, are you crazy? Like yeah. on the one hand, if he wasn't doing this work and on Snap, on you know food assistance, you would be saying that he was so irresponsible and not working hard enough. On the other hand, he's in this situation where he cannot leave his kids at home because he has to pay someone to leave, to, you know, to watch them. And so he's delivering pizzas or whatever, delivering food for, for a sub-minimum wage, having his tip stolen from him by the company. And he steps 10 feet away from the car so because his kids are asleep and he doesn't want to wake them. And you're going to call the police on him? Like mm-hmm. it was, it really, it was like an, a moment in which all of these things um, crystallized for me, like the, the sense of responsibility, um, uh, you know, the responsibilization uh, that, uh, that middle-class consumer America feels um, with regard in relationship to people who are poor, that they, that they need, that they act irresponsibly and they're poor because they are, they make bad decisions. Also terrible predicament of childcare for the working poor in this country, um, and also just this general disdain and mistrust that, um, that you know, particularly middle class and upper middle class consumers feel towards working people. And it was just um, such, like, I think about it almost every day because it was such a, a, there were so many ways in which you could see that same, that same situation. You could, you know, you could see you could have like compassion for this man. You could think about what a good father he was, where he was like trying to take care of his children and make a living in an economy and an environment that just didn't want him to be able to do either well. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet there was this accusatory effort to criminalize him for being a father and, and a provider. It was just so um, such a gross crystallization of exactly Ed, what you're referencing, um, which is this sort of way in which culturally consumers are are relating to workers. I want to put in conversation here. I mean, there's, I think a lot of what we're getting at here is this kind of uh, really deep internalization of a kind of neoliberal subjectivity of a shift, um, both in the political and the economic realm. So I'll just quickly read um, two different paragraphs here. One is from your essay uh, or your article on wage slaver entrepreneur, where I think you really uh, crystallize this this economic shift. So you say, um, in the quote, in the legal analysis of the DC circuit court, for example, the working class entrepreneur has become the opposite, not of the unemployed, but of the wage worker, reflecting not the way businesses structure themselves to avoid liability, but the way that workers should behave. He endures a low wage or income and must pull himself up by his bootstraps to replace the state's responsibility for individual social security and employment, rather than leeching off of entitlements, including employment benefits, he must entrepreneurialize himself by becoming a small businessman. So here we see this this really insidious shift from worker or working class to an entrepreneur of the self, to everybody is their own little uh, small businessman. And I think this perfectly fits in conversation with one of uh, my favorite uh, essays from 2014 by Zephyr Teachout called Neoliberal Political Law. And here she's mapping out the um, political corollary in this shift. And so she says, 
quote, a good polity is imagined by the Supreme Court as a public of relatively passive consumers who are to be engaged with their government sufficiently so as not to lose faith in it, but no more. It is a market run by a few powerful players who are responsible for the distribution of goods and an elite class, the court responsible for policing public morality. She then goes on to talk about how um, this, is, this is what has happened in antitrust law, where the citizen has been replaced by the consumer by way of the idea that a consumer with a political complaint is really a consumer um, who does not understand her own economic complaint. This consumer citizen, on the other hand, has no such obligation. Her obligation is to policies that serve her best. The citizen is mostly a consumer and the consumer is presumed to be self-interested. So here we see I think this gets exactly at a lot of um, the examples, this cultural shift, this all of these uh, shifts that we're talking about here, where it's uh, in the economic realm, there's no longer workers or owners. There's just different levels of, of entrepreneurs. Some are more successful than others, and that's only by the merit of their own ability to uh, work hard and entrepreneurialize themselves. And then in the political realm, there's no protections, there's no support, there's no responsibility on the on the behalf of the state to do anything. There are only there are no citizens, there are only consumers who go about in their world consuming and demanding to be served as consumers. You know, and, and this shift has been as as you, as Zephyr, as so many people have pointed out, this this is not something new. This has been happening for uh the last 50, 60, 70 years, the shift has been underway, but really does feel like we are at the nadir. We are at this point of how could it, how could it possibly amplify or accelerate even any further than where, where it is right now? And yet it can, like, as we see, <laughs> I mean, because we, one of the things that I, I've thought about so much is this idea of authoritarian neoliberalism, which is, I think, like the next the, or the, mm -hmm. the, the shift that we are currently in, you know, the, the different from the 80s and 90s, um, a move not just to where um, markets rule everything, um, but also to where um, to where we have an increasing sense that there is certain kinds of markets that are preferable and those markets deeply correspond to cruelty and poverty for particular people such that um, people of color have you know all of their all of their ability to engage in um, in political movements in the uh, in economic movements and um, stripped from them primarily because they have their lives run not just their political lives run by corporations but their but but every aspect of their life run by corporations um, their the way that they uh, the way that they live at home the way that they engage with their employer the way that they I mean every aspect of everything that we do is run by you know these these shrouded shrouded corporations as opposed to through democratic governance and I um, I feel like this gig economy really represents that where you have like workers who are, again, uh, working such long hours that they don't have the ability to 
engage in in politics, in mm-hmm. in democracy, whether that's workplace democracy or electoral democracy, um, you don't like they don't have the ability to do anything else but work like serfs um, for sixteen hours a day to eke out a living, and yet somehow it is their fault if they fail because they are entrepreneurs, and and that has been so internalized by so many people. You know, so many people have said to me um, in like in my in my ethnography things like, oh. Um, I, I, I'll work 10 more hours before I have to, I have to apply for food stamps. And I'm like, why, why should you have to work 80 hours a week before you apply for food stamps? And the, the feeling somehow is that they have failed if they do that when really, we have failed. The body politic mm-hmm. has failed. Democracy has failed. If you work 80 hours a week and can't feed your children, like you are not the failure. Do you know that you're one of the few predator species that preys even on itself? This is that like the two sides of how this is framed as well. On one hand, it is, you know, it's framed in that the way we were talking about before with the kind of like the snitching and the policing, right? Where, you know, you're, you're looking down on somebody for doing this um, or, or like that story that went around recently from the New York Post that was, you know, this expose on some, uh, a paramedic in New York City who also had an OnlyFans, right? And how, oh my God, this is the moral collapse of society. Um, never asking the question of, well, why does this paramedic need to have an OnlyFans to to make ends meet, to make extra money. And then on the on the, the flip side of that, there is also these stories that are framed in terms of, you know, heartwarming, you know, a yeah. heartwarming story of, oh, isn't it so great that this person has taken it upon themselves to work three different jobs so that they can put their kid um, through high school or, or whatever, and so that they can put food on their family. It's like, that's not a heartwarming story. <laughs> like, what the hell? It's so tragic. Or like everyone had to give up their own vacation so that this guy who had cancer wasn't going to get fired from his job. Like, oh, yeah. it's so amazing. Everyone came together. When meanwhile, no one had to give up their vacation. The corporation just had to do what it's supposed to do and give, you know, give the poor guy the, the time that he needed off to deal with his cancer. It's just so right. Like a real, really interesting framing, um, framing around responsibilization and um, and and economic welfare and and its relationship to community and the state. Like completely fascinating. I would like to congratulate the propagandists for their successful job and everything they've done in supercharging American exceptionalism. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it totally is propaganda, but but it, it is also the fact that the corporations are doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, maximizing profit and maximizing yeah, um, this control. This is the way capitalism the works. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And, but the, and, and the fact that that continues to be um, you know, deified in a, in a context in which so many people are suffering just really is fascinating to me. And, and I think speaks to, speaks to, you know, the media machine, because I think that there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people on the ground who are, um, who are mobilizing um, in their workplaces, who are mobilizing in their communities, um, who are mobilizing in their, you know, apartment buildings and building power and critiquing the system. But it just, um, those voices are not elevated in the way that these kinds of other voices and stories are. 
think that's a great kind of segue to talking about what it looks like to build worker power. And because uh, I think you really got at that a, a, a real coup of Proposition 22 was not only enshrining into law this kind of serfdom that they were already doing, right? It just, it just makes legitimate practices that they were already illegitimately and at times illegally already doing. Um, but now they can claim credibility. They can claim legitimacy under the law for that. But uh, a coup as well is the ability to disempower um, workers from having any kind of time or energy to mobilize, to unionize, to band together, to have solidarity, right? Because entrepreneurs don't have solidarity with each other. They're in competition. They have competition. That's exactly right. right. That's absolutely right. Of course, that, that coup is not as totalizing or absolutist as yet <laughs> as it might yeah. feel work there there still are um, a lot of opportunities and a lot of push towards yeah. building worker power through like the gig workers collective through these kind of non-union workers organizations um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, the landscape of that of, of worker power and of that fight that struggle. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so eager to talk about this. So something I've really learned in my research or something that I've developed in my research is, uh, is a strong critique of the U.S. labor movement, um, or at least the institutional labor movement, um, mm-hmm. not, not the workers on the ground who are, who are organizing to, to better their lives and um, building solidarities and, and, um, and love and community with one another. Um, but there is a way in which institutionalized U.S. labor doesn't believe in worker power. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this unionism, you know, this uh, running a union like a business, um, a business that has to, to, to make money to survive, and, um, and a perspective that the more members that you have, the more power you have, and therefore the more political power you're able to exert for working people. That's like one sense of what some people in labor think the labor movement is about. Um, and those people are really focused on individual, um, individual rights and not so much believers in collective power that is more than just, you know, nominally having members, you know, they don't really Mm -hmm. believe in or invest in the transformation of workers um, through solidarity. They don't really believe in the idea of, um, of a democratic workplace or a democratic union where people are really invested in their unions. They're really invested in their coworkers. They're really invested in community. Um, And so I've really seen this play out in, in the so-called gig economy. So until 2016, there was absolutely no effort to work with or help to invest in the organizing of gig workers. And the reason that that it was is because in the United States, perversely, if you are organizing people who might be independent contractors, no matter how low wage they are, you risk uh, antitrust liabilities. So it could be that you could get sued, a union could get sued if they're organizing Uber and Lyft drivers and found that they were price fixing when they're trying Mm -hmm. to raise wages. Um, So bizarrely organizing could be seen as collusion under, under, you know, the, the perversion of U.S. law. So as a result, there was no real effort um, to do this. And then you had the companies sort of try and undercut what 
was the self-organizing that was happening in California and New York. Um, just a lot of, of disgruntled workers as their wages were, were dropping dramatically during this time period, um, banding together and wanting to demand more, wanting to build power. And so an effort to undercut that by um, trying to build their own company unions. So you see, and Ed can tell you more about this, but an effort um, actually all over the world, they went to unions all over the world to try and establish worker associations. They tried to do one in California through a lawsuit settlement that was eventually thrown out, um, which worker organizations objected to. And then in New York, they established through the machinists union, this independent drivers guild to which they donated money. And the independent drivers guild in return agreed to not fight for employee status, um, essentially, and, and also to not to not go on strike, I think. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of debate in the labor community, you know, about whether sort of confusion about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. And the idea was like, oh, well, this is a, this is new, a new work. These people are so atomized. They're so hard to organize. So if we can get anything for them, that's better than nothing. Um, despite the fact that, you know, very likely under the National Labor Relations Act, this IDG was illegal. And the result was really like a distraction, I think, for the broader institutionalized labor movement. There was a sense that, oh, if this works, then maybe we can move in this direction um, all over the country. Um, and, and there were talks, you know, with Teamsters in California and Uber that maybe they were going to do something similar out here. Um, and then AB5 came along in California. Things sort of settled down for a while. And then AB5 came along. There was a lot. And it ha just happened at the same time that there was a groundswell of self-organizing workers in California. Um, so Rideshare Drivers United um, you know, started in 2018 at LAX and it was drivers without funding, without anyone telling them what to do, saying they wanted to build worker power. And they grew and grew and grew and grew and grew through one-on-one -on -one conversations, through the building of relationships, through struggle with each other, through hard conversations. And they grew to have an enormous membership, which is really what allowed AB5 in California to pass when it did and how it did, because they had the power and to push the California legislature to pass the law. And then even during those debates, what we heard from some of institutionalized labor was that, you know, it's it makes sense at this point to compromise with the companies because they are in a weak position. Um, mm -hmm. they, they do not want the ABC test to pass in California. So why don't we try and get something from them? And that's something that they want we're going to get was what both the, you know, the SCIU and Teamsters, who are the, organ who are the unions that were bargaining for this um, with the companies, meeting with the companies while, while the workers were trying to fight for AB5, they were trying to hammer out a compromise. And what that compromise was, was a type of sectoral bargaining. And mm -hmm. so you hear this from the Biden administration, you hear this term from a lot of leftist labor scholars. Um, you know, there is nothing bad inherently about sectoral bargaining. But the companies were offering a form of sectoral bargaining, and some of these unions were very interested in it. Sectoral bargaining, by definition, just means you're bargaining to help set wages in a sector with multiple employers, as opposed to enterprise by enterprise bargaining, where you are um, saying to one employer, we are bargaining just with you, Uber, you are bargaining just with you, Lyft, we are bargaining just with you, Instacart. Um, sectoral bargaining is we're going to bargain with Uber and Lyft at the same time and set wages. And now mm -hmm. this makes sense 
for certainly makes sense in the gig economy. Again, there's nothing wrong about sectoral bargaining for ride hail. Like it could be completely fine, but the way that it was being used by both the gig companies and unfortunately by these by, by these unions um, was to create a sectoral bargaining situation in which workers were going to have to um, bargain up to what other workers already had. So in general, in unionizing, the idea is that you have a floor, and in the U.S., that floor is the minimum wage, and then you bargain up from the floor. You have these basic protections, and then you bargain up from that. So unionized workers make more than the minimum wage. They have more benefits than um, than just unemployment insurance and workers' compensation. They have just cause, so you can't fire them for wearing a blue shirt. They're not at-will workers. You know, they have they have a variety. They have better pension packages. They have better things than just the basics required by the law. But what the companies were doing and what some of the unions were willing to jump on the bandwagon of is say, we will recognize a sectoral bargaining unit for the sector and we will agree bargain to some wage, but you can't have unemployment insurance, you can't have workers' compensation, and we and you have to give away the minimum wage. So they were saying, like, we'll bargain with you, but you can't have any of the things that other workers have, and maybe you'll get something slightly better than you know we're willing to give you through you know just what we're doing right now, but it's it's not gonna be employment status. And so yeah. That is the way sectoral bargaining is being deployed by these companies. And unfortunately, there are some in the in the labor movement who think like, again, the model here is one about political institutions. There's a belief that if you have more membership, which is what unions would have gotten out of this deal, Mm -hmm. then growing membership means growing political power and we can ultimately do better for the workers. And it's sort of like a trickle down economics kind of, of, of model of unionizing. Um, those those unions did not believe in the possibility of organizing the sector. They really felt, they really feel like, and continue to feel like it's impossible to organize because um, there, a lot of drivers are working casually. There's a lot of churn and a lot of turnover, and um, and we just can't organize them in a, in a traditional way. And it is true that it is more difficult to organize these workers than it was to organize um, auto workers in a factory in Detroit in the 1970s. That is absolutely true. But that does not mean that these workers need anything less than those auto Mm -hmm. workers needed in the 1970s. Um, And so I'm just frustrated um, by the kinds of conversations I've seen within the labor community. And I know I have have Biden's ear. I know a lot of these people have um, the ear of corporate Democrats. And I'm worried that we're going to hear a lot more about sectoral bargaining. And it's going to become a buzzword for something better for workers, um, when really it's an empty signifier. It means nothing unless you look at the details. And in California, those details are were that workers were going to have to bargain up to um, or even slightly below what you know, fast food workers have in a non-unionized context. And, mm-hmm. um, and you already see the companies rolling out these same quote-unquote compromises in Illinois. Mm-hmm. 
where there's a, an assembly person who's trying to introduce an, an ABC, AB5-like uh, bill. Um, the companies are saying, we'll give you sectoral bargaining in exchange. You see it in New York State, where they're already having conversations saying, we're going we're, we're gonna to give you sectoral bargaining in exchange. It's, again, this like ability of them to obfuscate reality to confuse, to bait and switch, to, um, to, to, you know, to have people have faith in them, to have people have faith in people like Tony West and Dara Khosra Shahi and really believe that they want something better. And this sounds really, you know, exciting sectoral bargaining. And, um, and I'm worried about what, how much people will buy into it. Yeah, it's like the uh, the third uh, category word. It is or, you third know. category. Yes, yeah. that's exactly you know, what it is. It is third like category. That was pioneered by, you know, Alan Kruger and Seth Harris or formalized by them, right? And Seth Harris ends up becoming, you know, acting uh, secretary of labor under Obama and then is leading the review team for Biden's transition yeah. and is on the short list for secretary of labor. And it's, it's one very of- troubling. It is concerning because it's like, you know, there have been reports um, like the uh, labor law newsletter uh, by Brandon, um, I forget his name, but he had a really good um, explication of how the NRB could be a, a light at the end of the tunnel if used properly to roll back some of the Trump decisions that uh, decided, um, you know, employment classification was totally off the table. But at the same time, if the you know Department of Labor is not interested in actually upholding reclass or pursuing reclassification, upholding NLRB decisions, or working to ensure that we don't have a repeat of the franchise model or any other yeah. sort of uh, attempt to to throw workers under the bus and leave them holding the bag of unicorn shit in this case, then it's yeah. just going to be a repeat of every single absolutely uh, race to the bottom. Absolutely. And I love that. Um, I love that unicorn shit. That's exactly what this is. That's what the sectoral bargaining plan of the companies is, is unicorn shit. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to write, I'm going to write an article called unicorn shit, Ed, and I'm yes. going <laughs> yeah, to dedicate actually, it to you. There's a, that's funny because my, in my thesis for school, I had a chapter or sub chapter of unicorn shit. And it was like uh, going through your work and being like, if it's very clear what's going on, like when it was taxi companies and now that it's gig companies, people want to pretend like it's just like they're getting gold, like a bag of gold, but it's a bag of just shit from the unicorns. So. That's mm -hmm. the name of your book. I love it. Um, <laughs> that, yeah. And, yes. you know, at the at the end of the day, I really want to emphasize this um, going mm -hmm. back to sort of where we started uh, when I started talking about Prop 22 and the, mm -hmm. and the result really being the fact that these workers cannot turn to the state in California, the result is that they are building power with each other. Um, and there mm -hmm. is something to be said about turning away from electoral politics here, really understanding that the U.S. state, especially under a politician like, you know, a president like Biden, who, you know, is is far center <laughs> Democrat, um, <laughs> putting our hope and all of our eggs in the electoral politics basket is going to be a failure for workers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
in the in the in the coming decades. And I think what the labor movement needs to understand, what workers have come to understand in California, is that whether or not the law wants to give you power or recognize your power, um, recognize your right to unionize, recognize your right to collectively bargain, if you build power with one another, if you build solidarities, if you build community, if you build coalition, um, if you have power, if you have real power, um, regardless of whether or not you have electoral power, if you have real power, then there's a lot that you can do with that power. And so I see, you know, if I were to foreshadow what could happen here, if we stop sort of bullshitting around with, you know, these fake sectoral bargaining laws or is potentially really really huge. And that is investing in real solidarity, investing in and believing in um, the ability of, of workers to, to form the kinds of, um, of unions. And I don't mean that in a legal sense. I mean that in a, in a real sense, like building worker unions that are, that are powerful and getting what they deserve from the capitalists, from, from industry. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a a perfect point there that, you know, building power without being beholden to um, merely electoral power as yes. the only avenue that we put all of our hope in. And I think Absolutely. your work as well on the kind of history of United Taxi Cab Workers, this, you know, non-union worker group, and you, and you talk about how it was a, you know, highly engaged worker activist, had a lot of potential for militancy, um, but but instead of focusing on organizing workers and achieving labor power, they were so hyper-focused on the National Labor's Relations Board. They were so focused on the, what you call the, the, they were constrained by the illusory p- possibilities of labor law, right? Yeah. That, that somehow that labor law, that this institution would swoop in and save them. That would be yeah. the savior. As long as they, you know, as long as they focus their attention on that, as long as they said, hey, we want to work with you. Um, and and they they and ultimately they failed because they didn't focus on building worker solidarity, building labor power, um, and and building that militancy that escapes these bonds and these constraints of um, labor law that is not written for them. As your work shows, labor law is written for and by capital. The capital and the courts are doing the handshake meme. They are, you know, all so that they can further suppress workers so that they can, so that they can do things like sectoral bargaining, which requires these unions or these groups to come to a negotiation table already saying, here's all the things that we're going to give away. Right. And, and as, as if that puts them in any kind of negotiating position, all it's going to do is lead to the worst deals possible. Folks, these, are the worst deals that we could imagine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, your your listeners can't see me nodding vigorously, but that was so beautifully, beautifully put. Um, and, and exactly right. Um, you know, and we've, and, you know, I've forgotten that I've written that piece and I've even forgotten that piece of history, history, but it's absolutely right. I showed how, you know, a whole generation of taxi drivers who really could have built worker power instead um, had too much faith in the, the, the National Labor Relations Act, had too much faith in the law and instead devoted their energies and time and re- resources um, into, into trying to get union recognition and 
And then we're, you know, I got a slap in the face instead of building, instead of having, uh, you know, building power and building relationships. And now we have Uber (laughs) Um, because there was not a union in this sector. Right. And I think by way of bringing this episode to an end and our wonderful conversation with Vina is, you know, just wrapping it back to the fate of work, of labor, of conditions, of power or lack thereof in for gig workers uh, is not only constrained to um, these, these, you know, people chained to these servant apps, right? They, you know, we, we have this in mind that, you know, oh, well, we get the consumer benefits, the convenience and the cheap goods. And so, you know, oh, that, you know, it's a trade-off I don't want to think about, you know, maybe I'm not for it, but it's one I don't want to think about. But as that op-ed and the information by that venture capitalist that you mentioned talks about their own imagination, their own ambitions are not constrained to Uber or Lyft or Instant Cart or whatever. They are looking far and wide. If, if you are lucky enough to not have to deal with these hellish working conditions, just wait, it's coming for you. That's and, right. And we have, we have to stop this now before it becomes an unstoppable flood. That's absolutely right. If you are a nurse, if you are an educator, if you work in hospitality, if you work in retail, these companies are coming for you. You are much more than just a consumer. You are a worker and identifying in that way, thinking through solidarity, um, thinking through building power. That's the only way to save yourself and your family from a, a, a lifetime of serfdom to, to the tech capitalists. And, and on that note, thank you again for joining us, Vina. Um, this has been your episode of This Machine Kills for this week. Join us later this week um, on patreon.com slash thismachinekills for the premium episode uh, where Ed and I will be getting um, deeper into some of this. And I think we'll also be giving some of our, our holiday reading list, talking oh, yeah. about the, <laughs> the, the things that we might, uh, that, that we think you ought to, to read um, over the holidays. So join us later this week for that. And thank you again, Vina. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. It's been so great. And I wonder if I could just end by saying that I admire you both so much and you're some of the best thinkers and most important thinkers out there. And I, um, I'm really, I'm really honored to have had this conversation in it. Um, this is part of the building solidarity and community and you are part thank of you. part of my community. Thank you for your work. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So that much. means a lot and everything directed right back at you, Vina.